Breeders' Cup is here. Plus, we'll check in on the youngest coach in collegiate sports, a windfall for the New York Mets, and later we'll hear from a barrier-breaking racing legend, Lynn St. James. It's Friday, November 3rd. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Breeders' Cup begins today. Joining me now to discuss is FanDuel TV analyst Dave Weaver. Welcome, Dave. Hey, how are you? I got my uh, I'd rather be betting on horse racing shirt on for you, so we're good. All right. Well, um, you know, hopefully you're, you're not too far away from making that happen. Um, so Breeders' Cup is today. It <laughs> uh, starts today. First, for the layperson who may not know a ton about horse racing, uh, give us a sense of what the Breeders' Cup means in the horse racing world. Yeah, well, it's its 40th uh, edition of the Breeders' Cup. So this started back in 1983 at Hollywood Park. But trivia for your listeners out there. Hollywood Park, what is it? It's SoFi Stadium now. It's where ah. bad football is being played by the Rams and the, and the Chargers. Yeah, so they demolished that about, I don't know, 10 years ago and rebuilt SoFi. But that's where horse racing used to happen. So 40 years ago was the first one. It's it's really the culmination of what horses have worked all year to get to. It's the, it's the Super Bowl. You know, it is the biggest day of the year for all divisions. So there's turf, there's dirt. There's different surfaces, there's fillies and mares, there's colts and geldings. So it's, there's 14 different races, but there's one big one. That's the Breeders' Cup Classic. Got it. And the, the prize purse here is $6 million. Um, and let's put that into context. What's, where does that stand in you know the, the horse racing landscape? That race is $6 million. The minimum purse uh, of the 14 races is a million. So they range from, they're all seven-figure races. The richest race in the world is in Saudi Arabia. That's $20 million. This is the richest race in America. The Kentucky Derby, I think half of that at, at $3 million. So it's by far the biggest purse money that we race for here in America. And uh, I think if you ask, you know, you stop a random person on the street and say, name a horse race, they're going to say the Kentucky Derby. If yeah. you ask someone in the you know, a, a breeder or, you know, a horse racer, a jockey, um, which if you could win run one race, you know, the Breeders' Cup or the Kentucky Derby, what do you think they would say? They would still say Kentucky Derby. Okay. I mean, the Derby, the Derby is the Derby. That's the race that everybody wants to win. But outside of the Derby and the three Triple Crown events, the Preakness and the Belmont, there, then there's there's no question it goes right to the Breeders' Cup. It's very prestigious. Got it. Um, so the Breeders' Cup, you know, has had some late scratches due to health issues that continues a trend of the last year in which, you know, some horses have died. Um, others have, you know, had to pull out of some high-profile races. Um, is this a new issue or is it something we're just newly paying attention to? Yeah, it's actually an, an improved issue. If you, I mean, it's very unfortunate anytime a uh, catastrophic injury happens to a horse. It's 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 very, very sad. Uh, but if you look at statistics over the last four years, it's actually on a decline. So it's at a lesser rate now than it was five years ago, and they're doing everything they can to continue to get that number to drop. Okay, yeah, that's interesting, because I remember Churchill Downs suspended racing for a period uh, earlier this year, uh, which made it feel like, you know, this was a sudden thing that was kind of taking people by surprise. But sort of what you're saying is, Actually, this has been going on and and things have steadily improved. Yes. All right. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, and how has the the horse racing world, is there sort of a, a modern version of it? You think of it as one of these kind of old timey things. I mean, the Kentucky Derby, the, all the lore around that contributes to that. But um, 
does it still feel like this sort of, you know, the way they were doing it 40 years ago? Or or is there more of a, a modern horse racing uh, look? Trying to make that happen. You know, okay. <laughs> a, a lot more of 1970 where there was no television, really. You, you would go to the racetrack and the tracks would be packed. You'd have 60,000 people at Santa Anita on a Wednesday, you know, because that was really the only entertainment option. Now here in L.A., you got the Lakers, Kings, Clippers, Rams, Chargers. There's just so many other things to do. So people might stay home and watch it on FanDuel TV, and the actual on-track attendance is down. But the fact that people are betting on it is up. So it's kind of a, a, a wash in that the popularity of the sport um, is more towards television now. But there's so much more competition for the entertainment dollar where horse racing definitely is not what it was uh, as, a, as a sport, major sport, you know, 60 years ago. And you've got your um, I'd rather be betting on horse racing shirt that's on, right. um, wh- you know, horse racing is one of these things that's been associated with with gambling long before, yes. you know, the le- broader legalization of sports betting. Um, how has the legalization affected that whole industry? Well, so horse racing has always been the like you said, the, the, the longest tenured legal form of gambling, you know, going back hundreds of years, literally. Um, so this has always kind of been the place where gamblers would come to to make their legal bets. Now that sports wagering is legal in many, many states now, that's actually great, especially when, you know, on your FanDuel Sportsbook app, you can make a parlay bet and you can make a horse racing bet in whichever you want to do. You could do it both. So, and I'm the type of guy that likes to bet on anything, like literally anything. So <laughs> I'm perfectly happy to, uh, to combine sports betting and horse racing and maybe try to get some of those sports bettors who had never bet a horse race before to see how exciting it is because there's really nothing like how quick it is, number one, and just the excitement of the human athlete, the jockey, and the equine athlete, the horse, being able to, you know, win a race for you and have you make a few bucks off of a great performance. And before we let you go, uh, do you have a pick for who's going to take home that $6 million prize? Yeah, so there's a horse that's actually coming in from Japan that won in Dubai back in March. I happened to be there. It was awesome. If you've never been to Dubai, go. Uh, and, and the horse's name is Ushba Tesoro. He's won six straight races. He's not going to be the favorite, but he's going to be probably for your sports betting people out there, like in a plus 300 range, right around three to one. So I'm going to look to make it seven wins in a row. Give me uh, Ushba Tesoro. All right. Sounds good. Dave Weaver, thanks so much for joining us. You got it. Thanks. New York Mets owner Steve Cohen has quickly become known for his unprecedented spending on the team, which had a payroll of around $359 million in 2023, before factoring in luxury tax payments that bring that spending close to half a billion. Cohen has said we shouldn't expect that kind of spending in 2024, partly because the Mets are going to be paying around $65 million to players on other teams, namely Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander. But... We just learned that Cohen saved the team over $200 million by refinancing stadium bonds at a lower interest rate. Those savings are going to be realized over more than two decades. But still, do we really believe that this particular owner, who just saw the Texas Rangers spend their way from a losing season to the World Series, and just signed a new president of baseball operations to define this team going forward, and has plans for a casino next to City Field, is he really going to take a step back in the year of Shohei Otani's free agency? We shall see. 
North Carolina has dominated NCAA field hockey. The school has won four of the last five national titles, led by legendary coach Karen Shelton, who took the job in 1981 and has 10 national titles to her name. Shelton retired after the 2022 season, and her job was inherited by Aaron Matson, whose main credential was being the star player of the team's ongoing dynasty. Matson was named the ACC's top field hockey player five times in a row and won the Honda Sports Award for the nation's top collegiate field hockey player three times. Now, at 23, she is the youngest collegiate head coach in the country, and on Wednesday, she led the Tar Heels to an ACC semifinal victory over Virginia. The team will be going for their seventh straight ACC title and Matson's first as head coach on Friday, with a national championship taking place later this month at Karen Shelton Stadium. Up next, if you think about the various challenges women have breaking into the male-dominated racing world today, imagine what it was like in the 70s. That was the reality facing my next guest, Lynn St. James, who was one of those people who simply didn't take no for an answer and managed to find her own way. You'll hear all about it right after this. This segment is presented by Gainbridge and Parody Week. I'm now very excited to welcome racing legend, Lynn St. James. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Yeah, delighted to have you. So when you broke into racing, it was a sport with very few women involved. What motivated you to pursue a career in racing? Well, I really didn't think about a career in racing when I got started. It was, I like to drive fast, um, found that a legal safe place to do that was on a racetrack. I was fascinated by the sport. I was a fan and spectator first. Um, and then I found out that real people drove race cars, uh, in particularly you can do it as a hobby. And so I found out you had to go to competition school to get, you had to go to driver's school, a special driver's school to get a competition license, um, became a member of the sports car club of America, went to the competition school, got my license and started racing as a hobby. So on my own dollars and my own time, just trying to figure it out. So you know, it's really just about starting on the ground floor, like most of us do, to get involved in any sport or any activity. A little harder than most. You can't go out and just buy a tennis racket and go start hitting tennis balls or that type of sport. It requires a car and you have to prepare it for competition. You have to put a roll bar in it and a, a special seat belt. And so I went out and bought a, a Ford Pinto, which was my street car, and modified it to go racing. And it was my street car and my race car for the first few years of my racing. So a career never crossed my mind. It was just doing something because I was interested and then I was passionate and I've been doing it ever since. Yeah. Wow. Um, so w at what point was there a moment when you said, oh, actually, this could be what I do with my life. It's not just, you know, fun to zoom around in a car. I, I don't know if it was a moment. Um it was a process. I mean, I started winning races, which was great, not as often as I'd wanted. I think it was really out of necessity because I didn't have enough money to, you know, whatever you, you always want to go faster. You always want to make that next, you know, you want to go to that next competition. You want to go from maybe local to regional to national, and it takes funding to do that. And so money is a required um, element to be successful in any sport, but in racing, it's it's really a lot of money is required. And so that meant to me, I had to turn professional because I was racing where there were really no fans. I mean, it was essentially fam friends and family that showed up for the races, you know, when you're racing at a, on a local level. And to race on a national level, um, when you have fans, 
And where I wanted to race and faster cars and bigger, you know, competition, that meant requiring sponsorship. And so I just put my business hat on. I said, okay, even though I'm doing it now as, as an amateur and as a hobby and in amateur races, if I'm going to race in professional races, I have to look at this as a business. And fortunately, I had come from a business background. And so I literally turned my, my mindset to understanding this is a business and I have to approach it as a business that means sponsorship. And so I went out, I bought Advertising Age every week. I started reading, you know, the publications. I actually even went to uh, and took a marketing 101 course to understand what marketing and sponsorship was all about. And so, you know, I think any athlete has to know that for them to get funding, they have to understand, and I train young drivers this, it's an exchange. If you want funding to do what you're going to do, then you have to figure out what value do you bring to that company. Um, and you're now looking as how you can work for them and, and do something to benefit them because you need the funding to benefit you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still, you know, very much a part of the, the racing world. Um, were there structural barriers for you um, that you had to overcome either, you know, in finding those sponsorships, getting into the races in the first place and, you know, doing all that as a woman in, in a male dominated world? You bet. It was huge. Um, the curiosity was there. So people wanted to hear my story. But they didn't want to write checks. They didn't really. I, I think it was a credibility issue um, initially. In other words, like, who is this person? You know, um, I was fortunate in 1981. I got Ford as a sponsor. And so when I get Ford Motor Company all of a sudden sponsoring me, that helps the credibility issue. So then it had to be based on results. And, you know, everybody wants to win. But, you know, I won eventually, but I didn't win a lot in the beginning, particularly. So. And I think being the female, I, I got more tension often, um, but at the same time, I got less support because they really didn't have the confidence that I could win races. So there was this, you know, and I had this opportunity to tell my story, but I didn't get the, the result of that to be able to get the funding to do it as well as I wanted to do it and as often as I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. What was your favorite competition to race in? Yeah, I mean, I think there's different kinds of racing that we have even within the circle of, let's say, sports car racing. Um, there's what they call sprint races where you're you know, racing for a shorter amount of time. Um, and then there's endurance racing where you're racing for long periods of time and you're part of a team. Um, so you're one driver as part of a team of drivers because the races last 12 hours or 24 hours or six hours. One driver can't do all that. So I personally liked the team because I liked, I learned more um, from my teammates. I also got more time on the car. I mean, because the races last longer, you, as long as the car runs and finishes, you get a lot of seat time and, and that behind the wheel of the race car. So I think early on, or even the first you know decade of my professional career, I really did like endurance racing. Um, Later in my career, when I got to IndyCar racing, I liked that because they, were, they weren't sprint races as far as short distance, but you know, the car was built around me. When you have endurance racing where you're racing with other teammates, they've got to adapt the car so everybody can fit in it and you know, it's, it's a bit of a compromise. When I got in the IndyCar, it was like, this car is built for me and I really did love that. So. I love it all, but I think it's a matter of, you know, I evolved in my career um, and learned a lot in endurance racing, was able to take that to just, you know, to my 
experience then when I got to, to run in IndyCar racing, which was a one driver, 500 miles. That's a long time. So, uh, was, yeah. So anyway, I was, everything seemed to happen in my career at the right time. Not at the time I thought was the right time. You know, we always want it now, but it, as it turned out, I think it actually worked out in my favor. Yeah. Yeah, and zooming out a little, you spent 20 years on NASCAR's Diversity Council. Uh, how did you see that organization progress over time? Ooh, that has made huge progress. In the beginning, over 20 years ago, to be honest, it was like people knew they needed to be doing something, but they didn't know exactly what or they couldn't come to an agreement as to what that was. Um, and so there was a lot of conversation about it, but not much action. Um and I think now they really have boots on the ground. They're working um, for drivers, which is, you know, the drivers are like our ambassadors for our sport. The drivers are the things that most people pay attention to and really, you know, are kind of relate to the sport. So when you have women succeeding as drivers, that helps send the message that women can do this. The problem was we don't have enough women yet competing um, as race car drivers at the top level. Fortunately, now it has expanded beyond just drivers and it's engineers, crew members, you know, technicians, um, all uh, all aspects of the sport. And now you're seeing women succeed in those areas. And, and there's been proactive programs over the last about five or six years um, to do that. So I've seen great progress. And right now, racing is having a real moment, especially with Formula One, but but other racing series as well. Do you think that rise in popularity presents new opportunities to bring more women into the sport? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I happen to know statistically, I don't know the statistics, but I read them, um, that during COVID, when actually a lot of things came to a halt, um, there was really a rise in interest for females because now we could, you know, following our sport and getting involved in our sport, being interested in our sport. And I think it was because people had more time and they were spending time with their computers, quite frankly. And so there was a lot of information that was out there that, that was uh, stories about, you know, previous races, uh, actual you know, races that were on the computer, not necessarily on television because, and I think people were digging for, for information. And so the viewership and the interest in motorsports from women absolutely increased. Um, and so, and it's continued to be on a rise. And so I'm that, you know, everything in my, I believe everything in life is about timing and the timing is right now for women to really um, excel and get involved in the sport and succeed in the sport and, it, and it's been really wonderful to see it happening. Mm -hmm. um, you have a famous quote, um, I'm not here to prove anything about being a woman. I'm here to drive a race car and try to win a race. How important is it that women's sports are recognized on their own merit and not just as a, you know, always a social justice issue? Well, that's absolutely key. I mean, any woman athlete, race car driver, any athlete um, in any sport, they're doing it because they want to do it, because they're passionate about it, because they, they have a driving force inside them to excel. And I, I did learn, though, through Billie Jean King and the Women's Sports Foundation, that with while we pursue our passions and we pursue, you know, our our passion for, for succeeding in this something that, you know, in this sport, there's a responsibility with that. And if we don't reach back and lift up others, um, we are being, we're missing an opportunity. It, it is really our responsibility. So it took me a while to, to you know, come to those, to come to terms with that and to understand it. 
Um, and there's nobody better than Billie Jean King to get a point across. And so um, it was, that was when I realized that I had that responsibility. And she also taught us that while you're competing is when you have the most power. And so I really took, took that to heart and I started a driver development program. Um, I tried to lift up other young drivers. I remember working with Danica Patrick and Sarah Fisher and Erin Crocker and, and some of the other gals that did go on to success. Um, and I see now that there's more, more mentoring going on, even while you're competing. So I'm really proud of our race car drivers that are out there and, and other athletes. Um, I think we all want to win. We want to absolutely achieve the top level of what we're doing. But at the same time, we are starting to recognize that it is our responsibility to, um, to go, you know, to lift up others and to bring them into the same space and, and allow them to pursue it if they have that same passion. Yeah. encourage that. Yeah, absolutely. This year is Gainbridge's inaugural Parity Week uh, designed to celebrate women's sports and athletes. What does it mean to you to be a part of this celebration? What are you most looking forward to? Well, I am so proud to be involved in, in Gainbridge's Parity Week and, and just their overall program. Um, I have fought for decades um, to be able to get equal support, equal sponsorship to my competitors. Um, I've had to do more with less. Um, and I've certainly watched other athletes have to go through the same thing. And so I really see the value of what Parity Week is all about, not just Parity Week, but the Parity organization, um, to be able to really be organized to go out and find support for women athletes while they're currently competing or even in their past competition life. Um, and so it, it's something I believe in passionately, and I'm honored to be a part of it. And to be aligned right now with Parody Week with Billie Jean King and Annika Sorenstrom, I'm like, I'm just over the moon, proud and happy to be able to be a part of it. Yeah, it's, it's not bad company. <laughs> just to, yeah, to finish this up here, is there, um, is there a milestone or a goal that you're looking toward in all these issues? Or is it just really just an ongoing, you know, I fight is maybe, I don't know if that's the right word, but an, an ongoing process? Yeah, it's, it is an ongoing process. I don't want to call it a fight, but it, it requires a huge amount of, of support. I'm so proud of Women in Motorsports North America because now we have a collective organization of professional women and men because it takes male allies. The, the people that are out there in leadership positions need to help us, and, and many of those are men. And so we have now a collective organization of people who are, who are really – proactively trying to encourage and support women in all fields of motorsports. So I'm very, very pleased about that. As far as race car drivers, it is definitely, there isn't just, oh, if we get that done, we're done. Um, what we have to do is we have to um, raise the level of all the young females that are out there racing. I mean, they're starting now when they're eight, nine, 10 years old. And so we need to be able to encourage them and, and give them hope that if they do all the right stuff, they're going to be able to, to be successful. Um, we need women on the podium, though. It, we don't just need them in the game. We don't just need them in the sport. We need them either winning. And when you're on that podium, it means you're finished first, second, or third. And you're there because you earned it. And we need more women on the podium. I'm seeing it happen. We just had a woman win a championship in, in uh, sprint cars midgets and USAC, which is a lower level, yes, but that's what we need. Women winning championships, winning races. When you win, people want to be a part of it. 
And that's what will encourage others to be able to support women and other young girls and women to see they can also do it. So that's the process, but we've got to get them up there on that podium. Yeah, absolutely. Lynn St. James, really enjoyed the chat. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. That is it for today. Subscribe to Front Office Sports Today on your favorite podcast app. Enjoy your weekend. Daylight saving time ends on Sunday, so hopefully you'll get an extra hour of sleep. Thanks for listening. We'll see you Monday.